Route 66. Before we begin our actual journey, book by book, through the Bible, let's have an introduction to the Bible. When beginning a journey, it's best to first take a look at the map (laughs) to get an overall picture of where we are going and why we are taking the trip. So that's what we're going to do today with this introduction to the Bible. Follow along in your Bible as I read today's text, 2 Timothy 3. We pick it up with verse 14. Paul is writing to this young preacher, Timothy, and he says, But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now with this Scripture as our backdrop, let's take a closer look at this unique and unequaled book we call the Bible, the Scriptures, God's Word. I want you to notice five things with me about the Bible today. Let's begin with the information about the Bible. Just some general information that we can give about the Bible. To help us get started, I want to refer to a couple of charts that I provided in today's lesson notes. The first chart is this blue one that you see that's inside the sermon notes itself. You can just take it out and look at it for just a moment. Called the Bible at a Glance. was produced by InterVarsity Press. Basically, it's a timeline that shows the content of the Bible under two major periods. The Old Testament period with its 39 books and the New Testament period with its 27 books. Put the chart back away again because I want you to study that further on your own later and don't want you to be distracted right now by it. But I trust that it will give you a better understanding of the historical context of Scripture. The second chart, the Bible bookcase, I have placed there in your lesson notes under this point, information about the Bible, and I'm displaying it up here on the monitors. As we look at it a little bit closer, let me make several observations about the information that's found in God's Word, the Bible. This book is actually a library of 66 different books written by 40 men and women over a period of some 1,600 years. It's divided into two major sections. The Old Testament, represented by the first two shelves in the bookcase, containing 39 books, and the New Testament, represented by the bottom shelf in the bookcase, containing 27 books. You'll notice it's arranged in various sections. In the Old Testament, you have the first five books, the books of law, the Pentateuch. Uh, You have then the books of history about the Jewish nation. You have the books of poetry. Then you have the uh, major prophets, and then you have the minor prophets. In the New Testament, you have the four Gospels, the life of Jesus. You have the one book of history, the book of Acts. Then you have the, the letters to the churches, and then the letters to the friends, and then the general epistles, and finally one last book, the last book of the New Testament, the book of Revelation, the book of prophecy. Now moving away from this chart, you can look at that again a little more on your own later, I believe it's important that we understand that there is one grand central theme, a single 
scarlet thread, if you will, that runs through Scripture. From as early as immediately following the fall of humankind in the Garden of Eden and at Genesis 3 and verse 15, through the great invitation that Jesus offers in Revelation 22 and verse 17, for all to come, this one theme is repeated again and again, and that is salvation through God's Son, Jesus Christ. Salvation through God's Son, Jesus Christ. Christ. Earlier we read Paul's words to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.15. From infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. You see, Timothy was raised by a godly grandmother, Lois, and a mother, Eunice, who raised him up, of course, in the Old Testament scriptures, which is what they had because the New Testament hadn't been written yet. And yet, when the gospel came along, because of that foundation for his faith, Timothy was ready and willing, and in fact, did embrace Jesus Christ as the Savior and Lord of his life. In John 5, verses 39 and 40, Jesus rebuked the Jewish leaders with these words. You have your heads in your Bibles constantly because you think you'll find eternal life there, but you miss the forest for the trees. These scriptures are all about me. And here I am standing right before you, and you aren't willing to receive from me the life you say you want. Again, you know the story of the Jewish religious leaders, how they studied the Scriptures, they wrote about the Scriptures, they had all these teachings and doctrines about the Scripture, and yet when Jesus came, the one the very Scripture's all about, they missed Him. Read John 20 and verse 31 out loud with me. These Scriptures are written in order that you may believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and that through believing and cleaving to and trusting and relying upon Him, you may have life through His name. That's what the Bible's all about. Paul puts it this way, Romans 10, verses 16 and 17, but not everybody is ready to listen to the Bible. Ready to see and hear and act. The point is, before you trust in Christ, you have to listen to Scripture. But unless God's Word is read and taught, there's nothing to listen to. Friend, whatever you do, as we make this Route 66 journey through the Bible, don't miss this one grand central theme of Scripture, this scarlet thread that weaves its way through the Scripture of redemption from Genesis through Revelation, beginning to end, salvation through God's Son, Jesus Christ. And so each week, as we overview each of these 66 books, we're going to purposely take time to stop and look and listen for this theme will intentionally point out where Jesus is found in every book in the Bible. Now having said that, let's move from the serious to the trivial. (laughs) And let's have a little bit of fun this morning, I hope. Here's a little quiz about information in the Bible that I thought that we would just include here for your entertainment. I'm not going to make you, you know, feel bad about this. I'm just going to give you some info, okay? What is the longest book in the Bible? Psalms, everybody got that one, 150 chapters, 2,461 verses, 43,743 words. What's the shortest book in the Bible? It's actually 3 John, one chapter, 14 verses, 299 words. What's the longest verse in the Bible? 
Esther 8 and verse 9. <laughs> Depending upon the version you read it from, about 80 words in that one verse. What's the shortest verse in the Bible? John 11.35. Two words. Jesus wept. That's it. What's the longest chapter in the Bible? Psalm 119, yes, there's 176 verses just in that one psalm. What's the shortest chapter in the Bible? Psalm 117, <laughs> only two verses. What's the middle chapter of the entire Bible? Psalm 118, 594 chapters before and 594 chapters after this psalm. What's the middle verse in the Bible? Well, believe it or not, it's Psalm 118 and verse 8. But I want you to listen to it. Middle verse of the Bible. You ready to listen to this? This is what the middle verse, the core of the Bible tells us. Listen to this. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. That's a pretty good middle verse, isn't it? Who wrote the most books in the Bible? Paul did, 13 of them. Who wrote the second most books in the Bible? Moses, Moses and John. Yeah, Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch or the books of law. John wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. In what three languages were the original Old Testament and New Testament manuscripts written? Hebrew, that would be the Old Testament. Aramaic, which was the common language spoken in New Testament days. And Greek, not in Latin. Latin came much later. Interesting. Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. When was the first printed copy of the Bible produced? 1454 in Gutenberg, Germany. The first Bible came off the press. Now, I thought this one was interesting. How many copies of the Bible are to be found in the average U.S. home? What would you guess? 4.7. of all U.S. homes, even today, have at least one Bible in them. That's interesting. Into how many languages has at least a portion of the Bible been translated? Hmm. I don't expect you to know this one, but I thought it was kind of interesting. The most current info that I could find was 2,798 different language translations of at least a portion of the Scripture. But before you think, whoa, that's really cool, how many nations and people groups in the world today do not even have a portion of the Bible translated into their language? 8,000. Over 8,000, in fact representing over 180 million people who do not even have a single word of the Bible yet in their native tongue. Well, we could go on, but I hope that that's provided you with some general information about the Bible. Which brings us then to our second point, which is the inspiration of the Bible. As we read in today's text, 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16 tells us that all Scripture is 
God-breathed or inspired. That is, God guided the thoughts and the hearts of people to record through their own individual personalities and style exactly what he wanted to have communicated with us in written form. Let's read 2 Peter 1 and verse 21 out loud together. Would you read it with me? The main thing to keep in mind here is that no scripture is a matter of private opinion. And why? Because it's not concocted in the human heart. It resulted when the Holy Spirit prompted men and women to speak God's word. Now, if the Bible is inspired or God-breathed, then two things must be true. Number one, it is inerrant. It is inerrant. In other words, in its origin, it is without error. Even as God is infallible, so the Bible, God's word, must be infallible. Now, how do we know that the Bible that we have today is inerrant? Because it passes at least these four tests. Let me give them to you. Number one is the historical test. The historical test. The Bible makes hundreds of references to historical people, places, and events, providing plenty of opportunity for contradiction with historical record, and yet there's a remarkable agreement between the biblical account and the historical record. And in the few cases where there have been contradictions between the biblical account and the historical record, more modern archaeological discoveries have actually shown that the Bible is the most accurate. We can praise God that the Bible passes the historical test. Sure, there are a few minor conflicts that still remain between biblical and historical accounts. The jury's still out in those areas. However, based upon the track record up to this time, we can trust that if and when the evidence is finally in, the Bible will retain its 100% historical respectability. The second test of the Bible's inerrancy is the manuscript test. I wish I had time to develop this thought in detail, but let me just state the facts. There are, in whole or part, over 24,000 existing manuscripts, handwritten manuscripts, of the New Testament alone. Not to mention the Old Testament. The Bible is, without question, the single best documented piece of ancient literature in existence today. Simply put, the scriptures have no equal when it comes to passing the manuscript test. Because we can compare so many sources, we can trust that what we are reading today is as close as possible to the original handwritten manuscripts. Which brings us to the third test of the Bible's inerrancy, and that's the prophecy test. Because the Bible was written over a period of some 1,600 years, and it has been some 2,000 years since it was finished, if you will, we can establish the fact that what many of these early writers boldly prophesied would happen in the future has indeed come to pass exactly as it was foretold. Frankly, we could build a convincing case for the inspiration of the Bible on this one piece of evidence alone. For instance, there are over 300 incredibly detailed messianic prophecies that were fulfilled precisely in the life of Jesus. In his classic work, Science Speaks, Peter Stoner has shown that the probability factor for just one person fulfilling these messianic prophecies by choice or by chance to be so improbable that it is in essence impossible. 
And that's not to mention the hundreds of other prophecies that are not related to the Messiah that have also been fulfilled in exact minute detail. How do we account for all of these prophecies in the Bible being fulfilled without error? Well, the only rational answer is that a supreme, all-knowing being, God, inspired the writers of Scripture to record these things hundreds of years, some cases thousands of years, before they came to pass. One final test of the Bible's inerrancy is the archaeology test. I alluded to this earlier when I mentioned the historical test, so I'll just say this. Archaeology serves to verify the biblical people, places, and events to establish that what is recorded in the Bible is indeed factual and accurate. When I've led tour groups to Israel... We have walked through the ruins of actual places where biblical people have walked, and we've seen inscriptions on stone and on manuscript that validate the events that the Bible records. There are over 25,000 archaeological sites in Israel alone. And as noted in the words of the renowned Jewish archaeologist Nelson Gluck, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference, not even once. And so the Bible passes the historical test, the manuscript test, the prophecy test, and the archaeology test, all proving beyond reasonable doubt that the scriptures are inspired and therefore in their original form inerrant. However, if the Bible is inspired, God breathed, there's also a second thing that must also be true, and that is it is infinite. It is infinite. In other words, the Scriptures are timeless, everlasting. Even as God is eternal, so God's Word, the Bible, is eternal. Look at these two verses, one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament. Isaiah 40, verse 8. Yes, grass withers and flowers fade, but the Word of the Lord endures forever. Jesus said in Mark 13, verse 31, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. The great apologist Bernard Ram writes, A thousand times over, the death knell of the Bible has been sounded, the funeral procession formed, the inscription cut on the tombstone, and committal read. But somehow the corpse never stays put. No other book has been so chopped, knife, sifted, scrutinized, and vilified, yet the Bible is still loved and studied by millions. Yes, the Bible is infinite. It is everlasting. It is eternal. The inspiration of the Bible. This book is no ordinary book. It is God-breathed. And it is inerrant. And it is infinite. Which brings us to our third main point today, and that's the interpretation of the Bible. 2 Peter 1 and verse 20 reminds us, First of all, you must comprehend this, that understanding Scripture is not a matter of one's own interpretation. You see, since the writers of Scripture were inspired by the Holy Spirit, and what they recorded was both inerrant and infinite, we must conclude that God intended only one, correct interpretation of each Bible verse or passage. And it's critical that we discover and understand His intended original meaning. Now having said that, it is pretty obvious that there are differing interpretations of various scriptures. Why? Why do people not interpret or understand the meaning of the Bible alike? I'm going to give you three of the biggest reasons. The first one is ignorance. 
<laughs> just plain ignorance. Paul writes of false teachers in 1 Timothy 1 verse 7, they do not know what they're talking about. I mean, the fact is ignorance does play a big role here in how we see the Bible differently because sometimes we pull a passage out of context, don't we? We, we don't understand it in its immediate context, nor do we understand it in relationship to all the other scriptures, which you always have to take into account whenever you are trying to understand what does this scripture mean. And frankly, just ignorance keeps us from seeing the Bible alike. The second reason is deceit. Good old enemies entered into this. He has, the Bible tells us, put blinders over the eyes of some people. He has deceived us. He is the great deceiver, is He not? And it tells us in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 13, the verse right before our text today, Paul writes, while evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And that's happening in our world today. There are some who have perpetuated false teaching. They have taken things out of context. They are doing their own thing. They're not taking into, into light all the, all the principles that you should use when you're trying to understand what God is saying to you through His Word. They've been deceived. And the third reason, very similar to all of that, is conceit. <laughs> Let's just be honest. Some people are just looking to tickle ears. And some people are looking for people to tickle their ears. <laughs> they just want to hear, I want a feel-good message. You know, I want something that's going to make me feel good about myself. And so there are plenty of preachers that are willing to teach you those kinds of lessons and not talk about the hard things in Scripture and twist and manipulate Scripture so that you feel really good about yourself because that's what this world wants to think and feel. And the conceit, of having a big crowd because you are an ear tickler is a huge thing in our world as it has been for many, many years. In fact, look at what Jesus said to the Jewish religious leaders Mark chapter 7. Isaiah was right about frauds like you. Hit the bullseye, in fact. These people make a big show of saying the right thing, but their heart isn't in it. Ditching God's command and taking up the latest fads, you scratch out God's word and scrawl a whim in its place. That's happening, folks, in our world even today. That very same thing that happened in Jesus' day. Because people are conceited. And they want to be popular. And they want to be famous. So ignorance, deceit, and conceit. Three of the biggest reasons that people don't interpret the Bible correctly. Now, 2 Timothy 2 and verse 15 urges us, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, and who correctly handles the word of truth. Don't miss those last words. One who correctly handles the word of truth. Of truth. Now, how do we do that? How do we correctly handle God's word? How can we be sure that we interpret the Bible as God intended for it to be interpreted? Well, we simply do not have the time to get into this today. It's called hermeneutics. How's that for a big word? It's the science of biblical interpretation, hermeneutics. And it's a complete study in and of itself. I took an entire year of hermeneutics in seminary, just to give you an idea. So, what I've done is I've printed a little handout for you. 
It's available on the back table as you leave today. It's just simply entitled, Principles of Proper Biblical Interpretation. If you're interested in digging a little deeper into how we ought to be interpreting the Bible, then you can look this up and you can find that at the back table as you leave there and take a copy home. If we run out of copies today, well, I'll make some more copies for next week. I didn't know how many would want to take that, but it's available to you. I'll leave it at that. The Interpretation of the Bible, which leads us then to... The next main point, which is the instruction from the Bible. Let's read 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16 from today's text out loud together. Would you read it up here on the screen with me? All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Now in your notes, I put a little chart and it's up here on the screen. Kind of small to see up here on the screen, but you can study it on your own a little deeper if you want to. But let me just kind of explain this chart because this is a diagram, if you will, a chart of the verse we just read. Paul tells us Scripture does four things. It teaches us, it rebukes us, it corrects us, and it trains us. As I understand that and picture that in my head, we're going along life's path. We're trying to follow God's Word, the path that, the, that we're being taught to walk on. And sometimes we come to a place, do we not, where we decide, I'm not going to do that. And we choose the downward arrow to walk off the path. Isn't that right? Come on, let's be honest. We, we choose not to obey God's Word. I'm going to do my own thing, thank you. And right at that moment, the Scripture speaks in rebuke to us. And it shows us where we got off the path. Now some of us, as you see the exit going down off the screen there, some, of, some people just choose to stay off the path. They never get back on the path again. That's their choice. They can make that choice. However, if we listen to Scripture very carefully, the third thing that Scripture does is that it corrects us. It, it, it tells us how to get back on the path again. And then once we're on the path again, you'll see that final arrow of training. It trains us in righteousness. It, it, it shows us how to continue on the path the rest of our life, day after day, in the discipline of our lives as we walk out what Scripture teaches. Now, what I want us to understand, I don't want us to miss verse 17. Here in our text. Look at it with me. So that the person, it does all this, so that the person who serves God may be fully qualified and equipped to do every kind of good deed. Don't miss this. The Bible contains all we need to help us become everything God wants us to be. The Bible contains all we need to help us become everything God wants us to be. The Bible is our instruction manual. This is our blueprint for successful Christian living. This is our source book and our guidebook. By its teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training, the Holy Spirit molds us and shapes us and refines us until we become the Christ followers that God desires us to be. The instruction from the Bible. Bringing us to the final point today, and that's the incarnation of the Bible. James 1, verses 22 through 25, urges us, do what God's Word says. When you only listen and do nothing, you're fooling yourselves. Those who hear God's teaching and do nothing, 
are like people who look at themselves in the mirror, they see their faces and then go away and quickly forget what they looked like. (laughs) But the truly happy people are those who carefully study the Bible and they continue to study it. They do not forget what they heard, but they obey what Scripture says. The point is, we're to hear and to do. We're to read and heed. We are to listen and we are to obey. Read 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13 out loud with me. Would you read this? When you got the message of God we preached, you didn't pass it off as just one more human opinion, but you took it to heart as God's true word to you, which it is, God and His word at work in you believers. And that's the point. Simply put, the Bible is of no value to us unless it is at work in us. Unless it is being fleshed out in our daily lives. Unless it becomes a part of all that we do and say and think. Unless it becomes incarnate, if you will, in us. Now that, of course, begins with our commitment and self-discipline toward hearing, reading, studying, memorizing, and meditating on the Bible as illustrated in this hand illustration that you have there in your notes and that's up here on the screen. These five disciplines, hearing, reading, studying, memorizing, meditating, hearing, reading, studying, memorizing, meditating, that's a part of our daily lives as we follow the Lord. We must get into the Word so that the Word gets into us. This includes taking advantage of opportunities such as listening to sermons or participating in small group Bible studies. However, I really believe the most key uh, here is our own personal daily time alone with God in His Word. You often hear me recall it, our daily quiet time. In fact, in the past, I've left you a little uh, handout that some of you picked up that's called my DQT, my daily quiet time plan. I kind of revised that this year. God just kind of spoke to my heart, and I've changed it just a little bit. I call it my growth plan. And this is, this is how I do my quiet time every day. Just kind of a, a form, a little outline that I follow. I don't do everything that's on this every day, but it gives me a map. It gives me a plan to follow. Most people uh, fail to plan, and therefore they plan to fail. And when I ask people, well, how are you doing with your daily quiet time? They go, you know, and they start, you know, it's good. I made that resolution, yeah, on January 1st. Man, I'm going to spend time in God's Word every day. And January 3rd rolled around and I already blew it. And most of the time it's because they don't have a plan. And so I just offer this, again, it's a handout back on the back. If you're uh, interested in that, just kind of help you maybe have a plan as to how you might spend some time alone with God in the Word. I'll just leave that back there for you to pick up on your way out. But let me get back to my point here. If you don't remember anything else that I say this morning, please remember this. As we are hearing, reading, studying, memorizing, and meditating on the Bible, our goal is not information, it is transformation. Our goal is not information, it is transformation. We don't need more information. (laughs) We already have more things in our head than what we are already obeying. Are you with me? We know a whole lot more than what we're doing. 
We don't need more information. What we need is transformation. That's what we're going to try to use in the series that is ahead. We're going to talk about what is the transforming power of this book that we're studying or that book that we're studying, this principle, that principle. As we work our way through God's Word, we're going to be talking about how the Bible becomes incarnate in our lives. The incarnation of the Bible. Route 66. This morning we've given an overall introduction to the Bible. When, when beginning a journey, I think it's best for us first to take a look at the map to get an overall picture of where we're going and why we're even taking the trip. And hopefully today's introduction has prepared us for cruising through the 66 books of the Bible in the next 66 Sundays ahead of us. We'll start with the book of Genesis next Sunday. By the way, 50 chapters in the book of Genesis. So if you start reading today, seven chapters a day, you will have been through the entire book of Genesis by next Sunday. There's a challenge for you. Let's get practical. Let me conclude today's lesson by looking at Revelation 22 and verses 18 and 19. This is a warning to all of us. In fact, let's read this out loud together. And I solemnly declare to everyone who reads the Bible, if anyone adds anything to what is written here, God shall add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone subtracts any part, God shall take away his share in the tree of life. That's pretty clear. Let's pray. God, thank you for this introduction today that we could take the time to look at your word and just kind of look at the map and where we're going and what it's all about. Thank you, Lord, for uh, your word that is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, how it speaks to our hearts and our lives wherever we may be every single moment of the journey. And as we journey through these 66 books and the Sundays ahead, I pray, God, Your Word would come to life in ways that it has never done before. That we would understand the big picture. That we would understand the plan of redemption as it unfolds in Scripture. That we would see Jesus in every one of these books. And that You would give us practical life applications. Because we're not interested in information. We're interested, God, in transformation. Would You change us? By your Holy Spirit, would you change us and mold us and shape us into the people of your book that we should be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.